0: Hello and welcome to the Flying Frisbee podcast with me, Dominic Frisbee. And today, something a little different. Um, I'm talking to my friend, the director, Alex McCarran. And we were having a conversation about where, I suppose you, you might say, where this is all going, where Britain and Western Europe are going. Um, and Alex has a theory. And that theory is south africa we are going the way of south africa the south africanization of everything and so alex welcome to the show and before you kick off just say hello and stuff but i'm just going to tell you a little story and then see what you make of that and see if that confirms your biases but let's just do a quick
1: hello and see how you are great well thanks for having me on the show uh, very happy to be here um and yeah tell me a story Right. So this is an
0: an Islamic friend of mine um, who I know through the the Bitcoin world and he watches my YouTube channel. And um, I would say he's in his early 30s, something like that. And he's made a bit of money. And like a lot of people, he's of Pakistani origin, a lot of people from Pakistan, India. There's a lot of gold in the family. Uh, You know, when there's a wedding, everyone gives gold, all the rest of it. And he's also into Bitcoin and he's into libertarian stuff. And he's made a bit of money and he and his wife were held up. He had people come into his house and at the same time, people came into his parents' house. Uh, this is all, uh, uh, I won't say where it is because I don't want to um well, I'll just say it's in a county just to the west of London. So let's say that. <laughs> and they go into his parents' house, a group of guys, and a group of guys from the same gang go into his house and they hold them all up at the same time for 12 hours in their house. And then they go around the house and they've got metal detectors and all the rest of it. And they take the gold and they're demanding that he gives over all his hard discs and all his passwords and all the rest of it. And you can imagine that is a pretty traumatic experience. And so I said Mm -hmm. to him, I immediately wanted to know, I don't know why, but I wanted to know the ethnicity of the people who'd committed this crime because somehow it was relevant. And he said, no, they were all my own people. You know, they were all other uh, Pakistanis or English Pakistanis. I don't even know what the correct, Anglo-Pakistani, I suppose, or something, whatever the correct terminology is, I don't know. And he was really hurt by that, that that one of his own people would do that to his family. And then one thing and another, these guys got caught and the police were pressing charges. And my friend decided that he wasn't initially he was supporting the police pressing charges. And then he changed his mind and said, actually, you know, it's going to be 12 months of court cases. All I'm doing is going through it is reliving the experience with my wife. I want to move on. I want to forget about it. I don't know if this is the whole story, but I presume it is. And I just want to move on. Um, And so he withdrew his support for the charges. And then the police decided to drop the charges. And I was like, whoa, even without your support, I'm surprised that the police would drop the charges. Now there's obviously stuff to this case that I don't know about. But one thing I inferred from the whole story is that, you know, everyone involved had a a Pakistani Islamic name. And I just think the police almost thought, do you know what? This isn't our problem. This is a, this is an internal problem to do with that community, and we're going to let that community deal with it. Now, that that might not be the reason, but that's what I inferred. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of thing goes on all the time. And we've got so many different immigrant communities here in the UK, whether it's, you know, Pakistani or Albania or China. You know, there's a long history of the of the police not getting involved in Chinese stuff that goes on in Soho. It's just like, that's your turf, you deal with it. You know, all the Hong Kong triads and all yeah. that stuff from the 70s and 80s. And then, you know, I mean, I don't know how many other communities, We loads of Eastern European communities, all the various African, West Indian, South American, you forget how many just how many South Americans there are. And when it's a sort of crime within that community, you wonder if the police just are almost glad to wash their hands of it a lot of the time. And it's just left to that, own community to police and so that's why you end up with this weirdly two-tiered policing system where the police will police the locals one way and the immigrant population's another way and then the locals get really pissed off because they're like well these guys are all getting off lightly whereas you're not we're not similarly the Mm. immigrants a lot of immigrant people complain um and certainly a lot of ethnic people not necessarily ethnic immigrant, you know, people who are born here ethnically complain that they're worse treated by the police. And then you have this whole culture as everyone's competing to be the worst treated, and you have a sort of spiral of victimhood. But anyway, that's that's the story. And my inference might be wrong, but I think I I think, you know, I'm talking very, very generally, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that a lot of the time when something is going on within one community, the police are often glad to just leave it to that community to sort out.
1: Uh, A friend of mine uh, opened a a cafe bar in workspace thing in in Hackney. It was a really cool part of East London, which is the coolest bit of London for those who don't know the geography. And um, prior to him, the, the space had been used by somebody associated with the Turkish mafia, In London and he was told by the neighbour that when the police finally you know took over the space they had to remove the body parts of victims who'd found their place their way there in bags bags and it's interesting that certain crimes are completely known in the public consciousness um i can think of things like the white house white house farm jeremy bamber where uh he was found guilty of killing his family spe- uh, other things partic- particularly sort of se- uh, child experience celebrity sex crimes whereas other crimes people being cut up with chainsaws and blow torches happen constantly and we never hear about it so i think that speaks a lot to your story there Yeah,
0: and Uh, even something like knife knife crime, like, okay, all the boat people, we would not know about these boat people were it not for citizen journalists going with their phones and taking pictures of all these people coming over on boats. Similarly, I think a lot of knife crime we wouldn't hear about were it not for this obsession with videoing (laughs) the crimes as they happen and posting them on social media so they go viral. And so... You know i follow a guy i can't remember his name on twitter something like london 999 or something like that and so he posts pictures of knife crime all the time or not pictures videos i mean it's 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 feral it's unbelievable some of the stuff that's going on and and those um i don't know how many of those crimes i know i know this because my daughter and some were both at a party and a guy in my daughter's year at school this is 2 or 3 years ago was at the party on new year's eve and stabbed one guy six times six times Jeez. and then he the guy who got stabbed was then too scared to press charges or whatever for whatever reason he didn't press charges and so the guy who did the crime i think he was under 18 or under 16 um got off nothing oh. it's, and this is like is. in in, in south button. london yeah
1: well, you know, we live in a similar area and my son is just coming up to three. Um, so it's it is something that bothers me a lot. I mean, obviously not now, but, we, you know, when he's 15, 16, starts going out by himself to parties and things, um, it's a real worry. And as again, as we were talking about the other day, about where we're going to be by the time he's that age. Just to go back quickly, just before we carry on, yeah. I, I want to point out that the system journalists who, uh, you know, show pictures of the boat people, a lot of them are hit with uh, state oppression. Uh, a lot of them have been subject to restraining orders. Uh, I, went, I went to film with one down in Dover at the beginning of the year and he, he showed me pinned to the, the gate uh, near the port. There was a, a folder of, um, and there was his name on it. On the official document, as if it's gonna, you know, as if sometimes they put up planning uh, permission. They, they uh, request, they put up his, uh, ex, um, you know, exclusion or um, what's what's the word the, the uh, when you're not allowed near near somewhere. We're straining. He managed to get overturned at the court because he was the only one who fought, uh, but the others didn't and just went along with it. Um, but you know, it, it's very, very much something that. The state does not want people seeing or discussing
0: and and like the, the thing about citizen journalists and I think this is why regular journalists dislike them is that regular journalists are quite happy to plagiarize their work they 're quite ha- happy to plagiarize blogs and so on, but then they don't reference the blog that they plagiarize the material from because it makes them look bad that they're, that they're um, you know using a blogger as research but the thing about citizen journalists is they often have a niche. You know, the guy might be from Dover or the guy who's writing about, you know, uranium stocks that the financial writer plagiarises might be a a geologist or whatever it is, you know, so there's stuff there is. But the journalists don't like them because they're exposing the shortcomings of journalism and the state doesn't like them because a lot of the time they're exposing the shortcomings of the
1: state. I mean, I I suppose FTX was a huge lesson that wasn't that because, you had a few Twitter accounts yeah. performing so much better, doing so much more work than the legions of financial journalists, investigative journalists, uh, you know, um, hallowed by the state. And actually, the most depressing thing about that incident is that it's all been uncovered. It's law-breaking on an unimaginable scale. And the state in the in the US just seems totally uninterested in prosecuting.
0: Yeah, I mean, how that guy's still walking free, it's one of the, I think in terms of the magnitude of it, the amount of dollars that have gone, it's the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. And the problem is loads of journalists, you know, journalists have been on the wrong side of Bitcoin for a long time. In fact, since it started, I'm just about the only financial journalist who's been pro it. And, you know, the FT hates it because, you know, the FT is full of journalists who are, you know, they've brought up with that economist way of thinking that the state plans the economy and this mm. regulation and that, you know, they just have this whole um, hand of God, hand of the state way of thinking. And they hate something. They hate Bitcoin. They hate the fact that it's been so successful. They hate the fact that they've missed it. And so all they've just gone is a Bitcoin Ponzi scheme. Well, no, this was an old fashioned um This was an old fashioned crime where you took the reserves of your clients and used them for something else. That's that's a crime that's been in in existence as long as there have been banks and and they've just sort of tarred the Bitcoin brush with it. But yeah. And and then at the same time, Bitcoin is so full of aficionados, but not only is it full of aficionados, it's full of some of the cleverest people out there. Um, and this is one of the reasons I like it so much because investing in Bitcoin, you're effectively investing in the cumulative IQ of all the people that are involved in it. And there are some, you know, there are plenty of people with 140 plus IQ computer geniuses who are pro Bitcoin and developing it. And that's one of the reasons the sector is just so fantastic. So yeah. So anyway, we've gone on a red herring, but the point we is, have, yeah. we have we have a situation where our institutions are failing us, whether it's state institutions or journalistic institutions, um, you know, state in and we have a situation where for good or bad, Britain is now very much a multicultural place and it is getting way more multicultural. Now I remember going to, I spent a month, six weeks in South Africa during the world cup there in, was it 2010? I think it was the world cup. Yeah. It would have been. And I yeah. remember being in Johannesburg, and I had some experiences there, which we will talk about as we go through this podcast. But one of the interesting things was seeing all the locals in Johannesburg. And I'm not talking about white guys here. I'm talking about black guys. Well, both actually, but especially black guys moaning about immigration from the rest of Africa, especially yeah. from West Africa, especially from Nigeria. Nigeria. Yeah. So there's massive Nigerian immigration to, to South Africa, especially Johannesburg. and for whatever reason, you know, different different jobs a, 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 attract different people from different cultures and different ethnicities. But for whatever reason, the security industry is heavily populated by Nigerians. There's loads of people working and running the security industry in Johannesburg. I don't know why that was. I became very friendly with the Nigerian uh, security guard while I was there. And I'm going to tell, uh, as we talk, I'll tell a story about him um, in a bit. But, yeah, so we've got... So that is South Africa that, you know, there's, there's mass immigration to South Africa. You've got the situation in, in Europe uh, and I include the UK in that where we've got mass immigration, the, the police are incapable stroke unwilling to police those communities, uh, in the same way that they police, uh, indigenous communities, uh, the different communities have different cultures. So they have different sets of morals or so they have different sets of what's right, what's wrong. Um, so different communities behave in different ways. Uh, it's rubbing a lot of people up the wrong way. And then we have a court system that is, or a penal system that's slow, cumbersome, expensive, and to the eyes of many incapable of dealing out punishments that fit the crime. Uh, we also have a culture where everyone is terrified of being called racist and now we don't even have a clear definition of what racism is i used to i thought it meant the persecution of somebody on the grounds of their color on the grounds of their color or race but it seems to have morphed to mean something else yes um and so it's all so vague and until we have definite clarity you know yeah, you know, religion gave you clarity law should give you clarity the police should give you, you know this is the line you go past here this is what happens to you but it's all muddy and so where is all this going and i'm sure every person in the country is thinking this and worrying about it not everybody but you know a large majority and you have a theory so tell us your theory
1: um i suppose if we start at the beginning uh by the beginning i mean the 1990s in south africa you had a situation where um mandela was uh, uh president Yeah, they had the objectively they have one of the best national anthems they got a new flag also really good flag um beautiful country and it seemed to uh, have a historic
0: been wrong had been put right
1: Yes, and it, it was a similar time to the end of the Cold War. A huge wave of optimism had spread. All the activism from the 1980s uh, had paid off. And you had what was, in, in many parts of the country, a very developed First World country. And there was a sense that finally this could be a model for the global village of racial harmony and cooperation. Now that didn't happen. And it didn't happen for various reasons. Uh, It fell into uh, very, very deep corruption. And um, one of the most interesting stories about that was that the government was aware of this. And so they created a a anti-corruption police force called the Scorpions who were very very highly paid so they wouldn't be susceptible to bribery and yeah. they had a cool name cool uniforms um but what happened was they were too good so the government eventually shut them down because they were getting to corruption in the government <laughs> um, yeah so th- there were these all these wonderful initiatives um and that fell apart and also, as you know from South Africa, you mentioned it in your intro, that there is uh, people increasingly rely on private services uh, because the state can't provide anymore. Now, obviously, as libertarians, we like private provision of services, but the problem is that we're still being taxed for full yeah. state services. I and, don't want to have to pay for them twice. Exactly and south africa effectively runs with private police forces because private security is everywhere and you know i i had uh i was subject to like an electronic mugging so people came to me at an atm machine and uh a a police car oh i thought it was a police car but it wasn't it was an adt security uh van screeched in and uh you know, I, I thought I got my card back. I thought, oh, I'm not going to press charges, but no, I, my bank account was emptied as someone phoned me from the CF Ethical fraud agency in Johannesburg a- Airport. Um, and what is happening? The way I see it happening in the UK is that I feel that as the country and the West in general becomes more multicultural, rather than adopting a shared civic culture. We're becoming ever more siloed. And historical grievances, rather than being managed and uh, uh, massaged away, are being reheated. So, another very, very good example uh, of a good initiative that South Africa did uh, in the 90s was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because they correctly realized that. You can't he that Mandela, I think, drove this personally, and he realized you can't keep dragging his, the country through the coals, you can't keep raking up history. There does need to come a time where you say we have to forgive and move on, and you know that that model was applied in in the Good Friday Agreement, and some very, very difficult decisions were made in that, and some very, very nasty people were let out of prison. And even though Northern Ireland has its problems, actually, kind of, by and large, it's sort of worked in Northern Ireland. Um, and, and for another podcast is my sadness that I can't see that happening in, in Israel, Palestine, at least not at the moment. Anyway, back to South Africa. What's happening is that even if the, stem- even
0: if the state says we must let bygones be guided, bygones, draw a line under this and move on. You know, that might be the directive, it might be the diktat, but that doesn't mean people on the ground are actually going to do it.
1: No. I mean, I think I think earlier, I think back in previous times South Africa, that was something that was happening, but that's gone now. And the saddest thing about South Africa is that it's it's not I don't see it as a rainbow nation. I see it's very siloed nations. So the white people still live in their areas. Uh, you know, Soweto is still there. The shanty towns are still outside the big cities. Uh, you know, the white areas are very gated, and um, you also have different racial groups, who are also very siloed. In South Africa, uh, there's a group called the Coloured group, and to sort of, in case anybody's listening to this, looking for stuff to be offended about, that has a very specific meaning in South Africa, which refers to. Uh, sort of half uh, biracial mulatto groups um, that have been around for, you know, decades, if not over a century. What we and would say,
0: we would say mixed race in England.
1: Yes, but it's its its own racial group as well that now. Oh, okay. So sort of it, it marries together and stays within their own community. Um, in
0: Cuba, and- by the way, when I was in Cuba, I don't know if they still have this in the 90s, early 90s, on your passport, on your Cuban ID, I don't think it would be a passport because I don't think they were allowed passport, whatever they, whatever their form of ID was, mm-hmm. they would have to say their racial group and like the photo wouldn't be enough. And there were like four or five, it was like white, trigueño, which would be sort of Hispanic-y, Mulato, Nero, or I think actually Negro would be the Spanish for black. And so your your race was clearly marked and mulatto was a,
1: was a type. Yeah, it was a, it was a genuine you know, category.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, which I, I've always thought that stuff is a bit dumb, actually, to be honest with you. I think, you know, I, I well, Cuba's supposed life.
0: to be a rainbow nation, isn't it? Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, and look, look how it's turned out. Like you they're not allowed passports or, or yeah. you know, very difficult to they, come They by. probably are
0: there now, but they weren't then. This was 94 or 5, it would have been.
1: Well, in any case, the thing I always say about Cuba is just check the direction of traffic. Are they heading to Miami or are they heading from Miami to well, Cuba? Well,
0: that, yeah. again, that's, you know, that's the market deciding, isn't it? People, that's people <laughs> voting with their
1: feet. Exactly. And so going back to South Africa, I, I just see this happening more and more. So, I mean, you probably have more experience in South Africa than I do. I, mean, I, I, I have a lot of family there. Um, and I I last met Yonks ago, like 2005, I think it was. But I was really, really struck by how uh, I was at a wedding and race just came up almost instantly in most conversations. So you were talking about this person, that person. It's like, what race are they? What race are they? And I just thought this was really odd because it was just never something that ever I entertained at all uh when I was growing. It just it just didn't it didn't come into polite conversation. Yeah. And I think more and more I think it is coming into conversation. And especially within the media conversations. So you know, you you and I both work in and around the media, although we're something of uh, around the fringes, obviously. on the edges. Yeah, but um, we're citizen media. Citizen, exactly. But when we have done mainstream stuff, you get those forms emailed to you saying, you know, what race are you? And now, when I look at traditional TV jobs, um, every uh, advert. Is suffixed with. We're particularly looking for people from ethnic or minority backgrounds or underrepresented backgrounds. Friend of uh, mine is a
0: TV uh, film, a TV director, and uh, she was she got a job and she was really pleased she got the job. And then she looked at the bottom of the form and it said uh, uh, only ethnic or women, please. And so she then was really wow. upset because you know she on the one hand she's happy to get the job, but on the other hand she was like, well, why don't they just write no white men
1: on the uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> It'd just save everyone a lot of time, you know, Yeah. You know, no, no dogs, no white men. And anyway, the, so, so the question is where, where has this come from? So I think it would be very easy just to say, oh, this is uh historical racial grievances. This, this is very, uh, this is justified based on the historical, historical, uh, and the the trauma of the heritage of of, of people who who have descended from people who are treated in such an abhorrent way. But I I don't think it is. What I think it's really going on is the modern hysterical progressive politics combining with uh, toxic racial grievance uh, and exacerbated by the natural hyperbole which is rewarded through social media to create this toxic mix of a siloed racially divided society which is consuming itself through these obsessions which can never possibly be satisfied especially made worse by the Uh, Poison coming out of academia where cultural relativism and has almost eaten itself so to me there was a very illuminating uh video that i looked up i you know it shows you how time goes by i thought it was a year or two old it was six years ago and i'm going to send it to you and and i don't know if you include other stuff in your clips in your podcast but you can can, do that I might not include the clips, but
0: I'll put it in the in the the description in the
1: Substack. Yeah. So it was a discussion about how um, it's is the video is called "Science Must Fall," and it was around the similar time to the "Roads Must Fall" movement, which was also driven by a a young South African man, I believe. And within the discussion, uh, some students are talking about how science basically has to go that it's all created by colonization and white men and doesn't reflect the needs of uh, young students, modern society today because it doesn't uh, accept traditional um, magic of, of the sort of native indigenous communities. And one girl starts talking about how within some tribal culture, people can, Perform hexes that result in people uh, having lightning strikes committed on their enemies, and the lad from the audience just shouts out, "But it's not true!" And he is rounded on, lectured, threatened with removal from the room, and uh, but at the same time, uh, he's laughed at by members of of the panel. Go what's this crazy guy thinking that people can't command lightning strikes on people? <laughs> what a loony. What an idiot. And I genuinely think, I almost think academia and modern culture is heading in that direction where, where realities can't even be expressed anymore. Um, so. Christian, I used to have a
0: girlfriend who was a massive, massive feminist. I mean, Looney tunes, left-wing, old-school, 80s feminist. I don't know where, 70s and 80s feminists. I don't know where she stands on all this turf stuff. But Mm -hmm. she used to say biology is the enemy of feminism.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or, yeah, or reality. Well, exactly. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to defend every form of science because, as you know, I've been very against the lockdown and I thought that was justified by science although i would say it's lysenkoism um but fundamentally facts can't be expressed anymore so you know, there's a fascinating article by an archaeologist recently who says that the the whole discipline is being brought into turmoil because people are finding that Racial, ethnic groups did take over countries and and the archaeological re- record doesn't support that places were always diverse mel- melting pots. Uh, you know, even to express that, you know, Britain was 99.5% ethnically hom- homogenous, probably more in Britain. I mean, London would have been the most diverse place in, in Britain. Um, and that would have in Victorian times, it would have been half a percentile. Uh, Or strangely, actually, I I discovered Or all
0: all the west coast of Cornwall.
1: Oh, yes, because of... um, Because of all the the trade with Western Europe and West Africa. Well, the the most interesting I found that was actually the ethnic uh, minority population in London actually in Britain fell uh, from the 18th to the 19th century um, because of the end of uh, slavery. Oh, so okay at one point it it was um estimated to have reached one to three percent interestingly um but that actually fell in in victoria's also because london expanded the pop the, the white population expanded dramatically with with industrialization proportion oh, okay. um, was as well um but even so the absolute numbers did they were bigger when there was slavery and um i i i encourage everybody to find this out it's the most interesting i found out thing I found out. Is that, would you care to know who was the first black business owner in uh, Britain that we know of? I don't know the answer to that. Right. Is is this really, we're talking late 16th century. Mm-hmm. And so Queen Elizabeth. He, yeah, late late Elizabeth, Elizabethan times. Um, not quite sure where he was from, but they think he came to London via the Netherlands which had uh, an Af- a bit of an Af- African population. Um, but he was a very reasonable businessman because he was called Reasonable Black Man. <laughs> <laughs> was that his name? Reasonable Black Man was <laughs> <What's> his name.
0: <laughs> That's so funny.
1: <laughs> yeah. Listen, possibly known as John Reason or Reasonable Black Moore. but I, I like... I reasonable, reasonable Black, Black. Moore. Okay. I like but I like Reasonable Black Man. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh and you know and, and apparently he, he they, they think he married a white woman and then he just kind of was absorbed into the general population but anyway that's by the by historical interest you know
0: so why is england becoming south africa why is britain becoming south africa
1: so we are experiencing migration at hi- historically high level and we're also experiencing it i mean we're, we're granting so many more asylum claims than uh in europe for instance which always just puts this lie that europe is much more progressive than we are just completely not true and but the fact is that the and why are we granting of, so many um i think it's because uh of his of the hysteria within the modern political elite culture and the media culture, I think the idea that immigration should be a full by any possible percentage and i mean you know you and i both well if if the population if the circle, population
0: of 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 um britain is sixty five million and net immigration was over half a million last year uh what are we at i mean what percentage is that one percent
1: nearly something like that well if the if you take the absolute number of a million yeah then you know that's more than 1% coming in yeah i don't know the makeup of people who are leaving um so there's 1 million people but, coming in yes yeah, so but but what's happening is that and most um, of it's
0: most of it's to england it's not to less of it's to scotland and wales i think yeah a- sure again
1: about. another big lie that these places are more progressive than england you know they're not you know yeah. they're they're much they're much less racially diverse and ultimately these cultures are not sharing in with uh the civic british patriotic identity that we'd all like and i think i think it's unfair to say that they don't at all i think there is there is a lot of it they do um but Increasingly, my concern is that places are getting ever more ghettoised and siloed. And you know, it, it it struck me that a lot of the biggest advocates of more migration are the people who kind of experience it least. So, a, a, a good story I always tell was that I lived in Bow in East London, and I was waiting for the library to open uh, to work in it, and. It was just closed a bit longer than it should have been. I can't remember why. And there was a few mums outside nattering. And there was uh, two East London yummy mummy guardian reading types, middle class, incomers like myself, and both white, talking to, them, to each other. And there was a proper East End Sharon having a proper chinwag with, you know, a... East End um or, or a um you know Khalid um Fatima or something, you know, a proper Bengali girl. And actually I thought it was interesting how the the two um yummy mummies would look down on the Tracy. Maybe she's sympathetic to UKIP, maybe she voted for them. But she's the Tracy is the one actually with the um <laughs> A multicultural experience but for the yummy mummies it's just another thing to get on Deliveroo and it's a, it's another bit of the um uh the flower bed of, 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 of the decoration of, of where they live rather than any kind of meaningful impact on their life so where where okay um so you've
0: there's certainly there's certainly uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot I could challenge about that story and there's a lot I could, you know, that we all know it's true uh, of uh, the, a lot of the biggest champions of immigration are people who benefit by it, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the form of cheap labour. And a lot of the biggest opponents of it are people who who suffer, whatever the word is, who don't benefit by it. They have their wages, the, the value of their wa- their labour pushed down. They have their communities upended and so on um so and people often think with their own economic interests at heart but what i'm interested to get to is why is what happened in south africa it's it's not just an immigration thing even though south africa has lots of it why is is britain going down the south why is we going to see the south africanization not just of britain but of, of western europe i think it's
1: an obsession with um raking over the past so The issue of reparations, for instance, is not going away and in some ways has been strengthened and now has morphed into this evil hydra of uh, climate reparations as well. Or rather, that would be another head of the evil hydra of reparations. Yeah. And ultimately, the political and media culture will not allow racial harmony. It will only allow siloing of races because that is the obsession currently i'm not saying that won't change in 10 years um like for instance i ha- i've had i've heard on good authority that the bbc some figures within it actually think they went a bit too hard on making all of their uh faith and communities programming so much of it islam focused um but at the same time the other thing that afflicts south africa is institutional breakdown, and that's due to issues of corruption. It's due to issues of um, uh, affirmative action quotas. Yeah. So we now have a situation where um, universities have given up any pretense of uh, equal access. And it is it is quoted based on schooling or racial background or ethnic background. Same thing with lots of professions. Uh, in the USA, we already have it on record that they accept lower scores. Um, and then within uh, other institutions as well, you have a huge level of corruption happening. Um, so to take the issue of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX. Uh, let's also combine those for a moment with uh, the Elon Musk takeover of Twitter and the release of uh, the Twitter files, which show appalling collusion between the state and or, or one party of the state, a political party and um, the biggest platform. The reaction is from the media is no one cares no, no head's going to roll for it. Nothing well, they're in, in, they're in on it. <laughs> they're in on it. But in the same way, as, as I mentioned earlier, the scorpions in South Africa, they found the corruption at the highest levels of their own government, and the government response was to shut them down. It wasn't that they couldn't fix it. And I just see that happening more and more. And Broken the- institutions... But the corruption in South Africa, when when um, these people are challenged on it, they instantly go towards, oh, this is this is racism. You're you're attacking me because of racism within the states. It's not necessarily always racism they use, but they always use a political justification. So, oh, you're just doing PR. The current one is you're doing PR for the richest man on planet. Uh, He's enabling Nazis, uh, different you name it. Um, so it's a willingness to use the dominant political culture to cover yourself from your corruption and incompetence. And I that's where I see this problem going on. So South Africa, in, in a word, you have the, inst- the obsession with race and difference. You have the instant willingness to take offence. You have uh, discrimination, intended to be positive, but actually just leads to less efficient recruitment and less quality recruitment. And you have immense corruption, institutional failure. Um, Crime going unpunished? And uh, Oh, that's another one. Crime going unpunished. Uh, then people are, I think we're going to go to a situation where people are ever more going to turn to private security because they don't believe the police can protect them. We were talking before you went on. But the use of private,
0: the use of private security is in itself. Like, you know, if you're Elon Musk or someone who's obviously a a target and a very rich man, I could understand why you would buy in your own security. But Hmm. most of us, you know, most of us have to trust the state to look after us or the police to look after us. And Hmm. the, the hiring of private security is in itself a it's basically demonstrating a a loss of trust in the in the ability of the police Mm -hmm. and you now see private security vans driving around Notting Hill at night and I'm sure you see them in Belgravia as well you didn't used to
1: oh and oh no yes you absolutely yes you do and what you also have is another thing that's worth bringing up is um there's quite severe nanny statism in South Africa, so I think during the lockdowns they banned alcohol, so they effectively tried to institute um, prohibition. And um, what happened? But wasn't that to do? As always what happened, is... is people started... now? I'm not.
0: not I'm I'm not I'm not excusing that decision, but I'm explaining it. I gather that domestic violence is really high in South Africa, and they were. And it was going up, or they were worried it was going up uh, because of the lockdown, which is why they. And it's closely related to alcohol,
1: and that's why they banned it. Yes, and I, I think Mexico might have done the same. People, co- well, people cooked up their own moonshine, and a lot of people went blind and died. So, as as always happens with <laughs> when okay. you try to do this. Um, but again, you know, there's always a trigger. Um, I think that. But from what I understand about South Africa is that there have been large calls to to do this, you know, to ban these things as well. Um uh so yeah, effectively I think those are the issues that we're facing. I think that South Africa was ahead of the curve in, in many ways simply because of the bizarre historical situation in which it found itself, where you had a sort of combination of a kind of in parts, very modern, developed Western nation, uh, sort of placed within a um, kind of ethnic landscape that was excluded from it. But I, I, I just see these issues coming about everywhere. And but I think the key thing that I keep going back to is that it's the use of modern progressive politics to cover for your grievances, your corruption, and your incompetence.
0: I think, uh, I I don't disagree with that, but I think from a practical level, you know, I I always like to think of what's the problem, what's the solution, you know, fix tax, everything else follows, that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Fix money, everything else follows. The practical issue here is, firstly, policing a multicultural society where there are just lots of people from different cultures that have different values and policing that equitably so the obvious the equitable way to police that is go we're in england we have english values we police you according to english values oh well i don't agree with english values uh you know what are english values and then you have a massive argument about what are english values and you know you might say tolerance and forgiveness and whatever else but there's also traditionally been a certain amount of respect for the law (laughs) and you don't kick a man when he's down you don't stamp on his head uh that kind of thing so but where the state is so pervasive and it has become that way in britain it didn't always used to be but it is now everything becomes a political argument Mm -hmm. now you know what i wrote the lyrics to the national anthem of libertaria and one of the lyrics was uh uh free movement free markets free movement free minds and free choice Mm -hmm. and a lot of, of any lyric i wrote the one that was probably most complained about is free movement Now, I think if you're a hardcore, pure libertarian, you do believe in free movement. You have no borders. Uh, You have no passports. Anyone could go anywhere. But where there is no government, it, it then becomes the responsibility of local families, local organizations, whatever, to police and defend their communities. And the problem in the West is that central government is just so removed and so distant from what's going on at the ground, it's impossible for ordinary citizens to hold their government to account. It is just impossible. In America, they have a slightly better chance because they're all armed. So in theory, if America wanted to rise up and revolt and overthrow its government, it could because they're armed. And once upon a time in in British history, you know, the difference in how well the state was armed compared to how well the citizen was armed was not that big. So, you know, a peasant's revolt was possible or a civil war was possible. It just is not possible now because the the army's armed, the police are armed and ordinary citizens aren't. So all we have is the ballot box and lobbying and, you know, the evidence is it doesn't change everything. It just creates this, just creates discord and disagreement all the time. So, but any in any case, in a libertarian society where things would be done more locally, if you have no, I come back to this thing: is no welfare state, open borders. If you want a, a, an expansive welfare state where the state provides the hospitals, the schools, the roads, uh, you know, the pension, everything else, then you cannot have open borders. You just can't because the mathematics are not possible. And and when the state is in control of planning as well, you just can't do it. Um, and because, you know, Tesco or or Deliveroo or or Apple or whoever it is, love open borders. Uh, they love immigration because it gives them more people to sell products to and more a bigger choice of people to employ from, and thus it drives down the cost of their labour. So they love it and they can adapt very quickly to changes in immigration. But state systems can't. Uh, You know they're just not. They're bigger and they're more cumbersome, and they don't adapt as quickly. And so this is why you see this chronic deterioration in the standards of everything that the state provides or historically has provided. You know, you look at the post office. I know it's a private company now, but but uh, it's still got many state legacies to
1: it, and that's one of the reasons it's such a clusterfuck at the moment. But that's interesting because in in a very small period of time, Amazon delivery provides a service so much better than the post office yeah you you do pay for it you know i pay my 79 a month for prime but i can get shit on a sunday you know if there's anything wrong with it they refund you immediately um you know the amount of stuff you can get there's people coming multiple times a day i mean it's it's vastly superior um, yeah, and I want you know, with the strikes coming on, I wonder if people businesses are just gonna say, Well, I'm not gonna use Royal Mail anymore. Well, they are. Curries have already done that. Yeah. And and so and then the striking workers will go, Oh, that's funny, I don't have a job to go back to because there's not so much demand for a post office. Well, it, it won't happen like that.
0: It'll there'll be some muddy solution because there always is. It's never as 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 clean as you might like it to be <laughs> in theory. But but, but what, in what, any case, do you do you accept on... my do you buy my point of of
1: yes? Well, what, know, local
0: off, local bodies would be able to handle immigration in a much better way? Either they would defend themselves better, or they would absorb it better. They would handle it better than can be done by some top down directive that you know takes over a hotel in in Skegness or wherever it is and shoves it full of young men from a totally different world, and then expects the community to just get on with it and there to be no mishap. It's just not possible well, have you heard about this
1: case in Switzerland where um, a, the village in which this woman lived, she was a Dutch woman, so she was applying for citizenship. The village were granted a referendum on her citizenship and it was rejected, I think, twice because she's really annoying. Yes. Um, she's always well, trying to great. advocate kind of veganism and stuff and she's always she's a massive hippie, basically. Um, and you think, wow a country where local democracy is so acute that a village can veto someone's citizenship. Well, and it's good because the the village knows
0: her better than anyone.
1: So, but the village is better
0: in a situation to monitor. I love the Swiss model. Taxes, it's something like 20% of, of taxes located at the federal level, 40% at the canton level, and 40% locally. So, there's so it's, much more accountability, and everything is determined locally, and they're constantly voting.
1: Here's my diagnosis and my solution, which matches on to yours is that, okay, we mentioned how the UK finds it difficult to do things, but actually, there is, and there has been for the last 30 years, a massive drive to devolve the UK in, in all sorts of different ways. You know, more power to councils, more councils, Scotland, Wales, uh, North Ireland, you name it, devolve it. Now Labour who are going to form the government- Until they're collecting
0: likely, the tax, they're not they're having they the power.
1: So the only thing that, it's, it's ironic, because if you want to, you know, if, if a voter in, in the Midlands wants to affect- Immigration, they can't do anything about it. But the one thing that you can do is, is stop houses being built. That's really easy. So somehow local democracy is very receptive to that, but but not to other things that voters care about. But I completely agree yeah. with you. I think that once the I, I think tax that has to be collected locally
0: for if, for their yeah, for power if, to be local.
1: If the Conservative and, Party were really willing to gut the SNP. And, uh, you know, the Welsh administration. Um, And there's a fascinating article in The Spectator by Isabel Oakeshott, which reveals how Scotland was very much a tail wagging the dog. And uh, the government was terrified that uh, COVID would lead to the breakup of the union because Sturgeon was just jumping out there, exploiting the cause, trying to go further. And so we ended up having a vaccine passports because they wanted to bring them in. Anyway, that's beside the point. So gut that right? Forget this constitutional bollocks that Gordon Brown is talking about implementing. Give them the tax raising powers. Break up the regions of England too. We've discussed it before. Anglo-Saxon heptarchy, perfect working model. Use that and then make the regions compete for people. Then you'll find what people really are interested in tax. As an aside on that, because I've got to go in a moment. I was walking down um, with a friend's girlfriend in edinburgh one day a few years ago uh 2019 fringe actually and she was walking along saying see in scotland uh we're we're, i think we're just more generous than the english we're we're more willing to pay tax you know we're we're willing to to take on that burden and pay high taxes and i just felt like saying well why don't you do it then because i'm from london right so i pay more tax than you do so fuck off <laughs> the beauty yeah it's easy
0: well you know a government that wants to get the vote of uh that that what is it a government that votes to um uh rob peter to pay paul can pretty much count on the support of paul is yeah. the, the famous uh george bernard Shaw quote just yeah. to very finish off switzerland you know i always thought switzerland was a really boring country and it is Mm. Um, it doesn't have the sort of pizzazz of its neighbours, Italy, France, Germany, wherever. But Switzerland has preserved its identity over the last twenty or thirty years in a way that the rest of Europe has not. And the other thing that Switzerland does is the postman and the and the you know whatever other member of the local community you care to think of, the the road sweeper or whoever it is. There isn't this change enormous gap between the or ordinary salaried worker and the people at the top and that's with yep. some of the richest people in the world living there they've managed to make sure that the people at the bottom are paid properly i don't know how they've done it but it, i'm sure it's to do with their direct and, democracy and, and all also the rest of it.
1: they actually have quite high levels of immigration i think it's something like eight percent born abroad yeah but
0: they what happens
1: is everyone comes
0: in they work and then they go out again okay
1: i mean i think there's quite quite a lot of immigration from the balkans uh, yeah but it's very
0: hard to there are you just look
1: at their football team but it's it's, it's yeah. quite hard
0: to actually become a swiss national they've they've mm. defended that
1: somehow well like anyway, this French woman Like if you're really annoying then you know don't well, you're not going to get it
0: i'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this podcast you know better than than we do alex thank you very much for your time um, Thanks, I don't know what reaction this podcast is going to get, uh, but it's Alex Macaroon. And if you Google his name, uh, you'll find uh, all sorts of fantastic, vi- unacceptable song videos that he's directed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, where can people find you on Twitter and stuff like that, Alex? So,
1: I'm Alex Macaroon on Twitter. And um, at the moment I'm working for uh, Reclaim the Media, the Reclaim Party, a Bad Law Project, all... So under the auspices of uh, Lawrence Fox and Harry Miller, um, so my latest uh, video was the top five climate change lies. I think I've called it something like "Climate Change Debunked." Um, I keep changing the title and the thumbnail to work out what's uh, has the best click-through rate. You see, because. Uh, yeah we're well, forming getting stuff on youtube is is actually it's 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 been a learning curve that one but we've got some great stuff i'm working on some really cool stuff at the moment so that's going to be coming out uh soon on the reclaim the media youtube channel
0: good stuff thank you very much for listening everybody um if you are looking for just a, i'm just going to plug a couple of things very quickly before we close um Kisses on the Postcard CDs are now available. The show, it's taken me ages to get people interested in it and suddenly, all of a sudden, nobody can get enough of it. But Kisses on a Postcard CDs make the best present, especially for an older relative if they were evacuated during the war or were close to someone who was. Kissesonapostcard.com. If you want CDs of unacceptable songs to give out to people as Christmas presents, errant, people with errant views at work or perhaps uh, stocking fillers, that kind of thing... DominicFrisby.com slash shop is the place to go. And um, that is all. Keep uh, reading this Substack. Keep subscribing. Thank you very much for your support. I'm very grateful. And I'm going to try and do, going forward, more interviews, more video interviews and that kind of thing, but only on the Substack channel. Um, thank you very much. And uh, I'll be back with another video very soon. Goodbye.